passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, today is Palm Sunday. It is uh, a, a wonderful day to celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem. And, and I, uh, I mentioned some Holy Week opportunities that we have as a church Uh, We would love for you to participate in those. Uh, But we would be wrong that just because today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, we'd be wrong to think that today is the beginning of Jesus' journey to the cross. Jesus, in some of his final words to his disciples, actually makes this very clear that this is not, Palm Sunday is not the first day that Jesus is setting toward the cross. Mark chapter 14 says this, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Notice that. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, the cross and the resurrection have been a part of God's plan from the very beginning. When Jesus came to earth, he was already on the journey to the cross. He was already on the journey to Calvary and to the empty tomb. Of course, we also see a change in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke chapter 9 tells us of one of the most important days uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is, uh, up until, until chapter 9, Jesus is ministering to crowds. He's healing the sick. He's taking care of the poor. He's teaching people about God. And then he gets to, to chapter 9, and he takes his apostles, his 12 disciples, and he goes out on a retreat. And on this retreat... Jesus asks them in a very important question. You're probably familiar with this question. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Everything that Jesus has done up to this point, he's been revealing piece by piece, little by little, who he is. And finally, he asks his disciples, who do you think that I am? Who am I? And we're all familiar, likely, with Simon Peter's response. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And Jesus responds, that is correct. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And then after that, we see Jesus change his demeanor. Jesus is, it's almost like the gospel of Luke is building up to this point where we find out that Jesus is actually the Messiah. And then after that, from chapter 9 onward, we see Jesus begin to describe or explain or define what the Messiah really means. The Messiah does not come to establish an earthly kingdom. The Messiah does not come to overthrow Rome. The Messiah comes to die and to rise again, to free us from sin and death. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says some extremely powerful words. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, being Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is a a defining moment in the gospel of Luke. Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem. Up to this point, Jesus has been ministering among the people, and now Jesus turns toward Jerusalem and begins to set out toward Jerusalem, knowing full well what will meet him there. And this morning, we're going to take a break from 1 Timothy to take a look at an account of Jesus as he's on the journey to Jerusalem. 
It's a parable that you're familiar with. It's a parable that the worship team read for us this morning. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. Or as I want to consider it this morning, the generous Samaritan. You see, the story of this Samaritan really gives us a glimpse into the ethics of the kingdom of God. How God desires for his people to live today. It is a a glimpse of the great calling that God and Jesus places on the lives of those who would follow him. And in a very real way, it is this type of teaching that leads to Jesus' death. You see, when we think of generous, oftentimes we think of money. Generosity oftentimes brings to mind money, and it certainly includes finances, but it is so much more than that. Radical generosity of the kingdom of God is really just seen in this parable of the generous Samaritan. This parable highlights the high call that each of us has as Christians to live gospel-centered lives. Past few months, we've talked about our, our vision here at Crosswinds. Uh, we, we've said it a couple times. We've said that we want to be a church that's committed to the multiplication of gospel-centered churches for the good of our communities, our region, and our world. And as we've talked about this in the past, we focus primarily on the first part, that we want to be a church committed to the multiplication of gospel-centered churches. We want to be a church that plants other healthy churches. And that's a good thing. But I want to focus this morning just on the second part of this. What does it mean to be a God-centered church? What does it mean to be a, a church for the good of our region and the good of our world? What does it mean for us to be Christians living for the good of our community? What does it mean for us to be gospel-centered with our lives? And I believe Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, gives us a glimpse into what it means to be gospel-centered. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be starting in verse 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan, or as I'm calling it this morning, the Generous Samaritan. Please follow along, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Remember, Jesus is on his way toward Jerusalem. He's begun the journey toward Jerusalem, the journey toward the cross. And here he is addressing a crowd. And in the midst of this, uh, of this conversation with this crowd, this teaching, a lawyer stands up and asks him this question. Now, when you see the word lawyer here, don't think courtroom lawyer, but think expert in the law. This is a man who is brilliant, likely has the entire first five books of the Bible memorized. He's forgotten more about the Bible than most of us will ever know. This is a man who knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He's brilliant, and yet he stands up and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is why? Why is he asking this? Of course, the narrator, Luke, here gives us a little glimpse into why he's asking. He tells us that this is a test, or maybe a better way of of translating that is it's a trap. 
He, he doesn't have a genuine question. He already knows the answer, and yet he's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to trip Jesus up, try to get Jesus to discredit the law, so that way Jesus will discredit himself and discredit his ministry. Of course, Jesus is not caught off guard. Jesus himself is a brilliant teacher, and so he turns the question on the lawyer. Isn't that how good teachers often work? Instead of answering the question or teaching through telling, he instead asks him a question and leads the teacher, the lawyer, to the right answer. He says, well, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? How do you interpret what the law says? About five years ago, there was an article in Forbes magazine that described how difficult it is for us to change, how difficult it is for us to bring about change in the lives of other people. And in this article, they cited a uh, research experiment that was done uh, a few years prior where these two 12-year-old boys were sent out onto the streets of a large city, and they were told to approach people who were smoking with a tract that said why smoking was bad for their health. And so these 12-year-old boys would approach these different smokers and start a conversation with them and then hand them a tract. In follow-up conversations with each of these people who had been approached, the response was overwhelmingly negative. In fact, 90% of the people who had been approached by these two young 12-year-old boys responded either negatively or resentfully to this type of approach or this type of teaching. So the 12-year-old boys were sent out again. This time they were sent out with cigarettes. They walked out with cigarettes, and whenever they would see someone smoking, they'd walk up to the smoker and say, hey, can I have a light? And almost the overwhelming majority would say to these two 12-year-old boys, no, I'm not going to give you a light. Smoking's bad for your health. The two 12-year-olds would say, then why are you smoking? The follow-up with these people showed that 90% of them had made a commitment to try to stop smoking. They had been taught through leading rather than taught through telling. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. You see, it would have been very easy for Jesus to absolutely destroy this lawyer. It would have been very easy for Jesus to say, you know what, I know you know the law, but I know it more. I know what you're trying to do. I'm smarter than you. I'm not going to fall for your trap. But instead, Jesus cares for this man. And so he decides to lead him to the answer rather than tell him the answer. So he asks this lawyer, well, what does the law say? And the lawyer responds the way most people would in that day. He sums up the law with two commandments. The first one is to say, well, you're supposed to love God with every fiber of your being. The second uh, thing that the law commands us is to love your neighbor as yourself. This makes sense. This is what Jesus has said himself when he's been asked this question. And yet, for some reason, there's this disconnect for the lawyer. He understands the right answer here, but it hasn't changed his heart. The man is right. If we want to inherit eternal life, then we must love God with every fiber of our being and love others like we love ourselves. You see, what Jesus is trying to do by saying, do this and you will live, 
He's trying to get to the, get the lawyer to a point where he realizes that he has the right answer, but he has no idea how to actually live this out. There is no possible way for this lawyer to please God, to love God with every fiber of his being, every moment of his life. There's no possible way for this man to love his neighbor the way he loves himself. He's trying to get the lawyer to the place where he realizes that. That he falls short. That you fall short. That I fall short. All of us don't love God the way we're supposed to. None of us loves God with every fiber of our being. None of us loves our neighbor as ourselves, at least wholeheartedly, either. You see, God isn't being unreasonable. God doesn't say in the law that we are supposed to love our neighbors more than ourselves. The law simply says that the same amount of attention the same amount of care, the same amount of delight that you get from meeting your own needs. That's the same type of love that you should show to others. The same type of attention, the same type of care, the same sort of delight in meeting the needs of others. The lawyer here is missing the point. This is really quite evident in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, the, the response to Jesus saying, do this and you will live. Notice what the lawyer says. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The lawyer misses the point that perfect love, the love for God and for others, if we want to do, so to speak, to inherit eternal life, if we want to do, it will be impossible for us. What's ironic about this verse is that this teacher of the law does not set his sights on the law, but instead sets his sights on other people. He does what so many of us do. He plays the comparison game. He thinks to himself, well, if the key to uh, inheriting eternal life is to love others, then the key really means to love others more than other people love others. To do more loving than other people do. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is it that I am supposed to love? Show me the box that I am supposed to check and I will check it. This is the heart of the man. Luke, our narrator, intentionally uses a word here that highlights something that the, the, the lawyer is doing, something that all of us are prone to do, and that is this word justify here. Justify means to show yourself righteous before God or before others. And that's what this man is trying to do. He's actually been embarrassed by Jesus' answer. He approaches Jesus trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus masterfully and yet graciously turns the tables on him and asks him the question. The man has been embarrassed in front of this entire crowd. And so he's trying to justify himself, prove himself righteous before everyone to show that he actually knows the law and follows the law. And so he says, who is my neighbor? I don't think many of us have vocalized those same words. Who is my neighbor? Show me the limit that I have to reach and I'll do it. I don't think we vocalize those words, but... I would guess that we've probably done what the lawyer is doing 
here, trying to prove ourselves righteous to others, trying to prove ourselves righteous to God, trying to prove ourselves righteous to ourselves. That's what the lawyer is doing here. And all of humanity really has that in common, a tendency to justify ourselves before others, to try to make things right on our own. And Jesus, he has this compassion, this love for this man who just doesn't understand. And so he responds with a story. Let's continue reading in verse 35, or 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus is asked a question, and as so often in his life, Jesus answers this question with a story. It's maybe a story that he's used before. Maybe he makes it up on the spot. It really doesn't matter. Jesus is using fiction here to get to the heart of this lawyer. This is a shocking story. It's a shocking story for the people who were in that crowd because Jesus talks about Samaritans. See, it would have been one thing for Jesus to say in this story that, who is my neighbor? Well, your neighbor includes your Samaritan. You know what? It would have been one thing for a Jew to help a Samaritan and Jesus say, you're supposed to help anyone. You're supposed to help everyone, even those who are your worst enemies. This is actually something that Jesus has said before in the Beatitudes. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Instead, he has a Samaritan be the hero of the story. Jesus suggests that it is possible for a Samaritan to be closer to the kingdom of God than a man like this lawyer. This would have been unthinkable for those people. The setting of this story is well known. It takes place on a 17 mile long road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This road is about the same distance from Spencer to Ruthven, but the road couldn't be more different than Highway uh, Highway 18. Over those 17 miles, the road descends over 3,000 feet. This is a road filled with twists, turns, it's rocky, and of course it is dangerous to travel because of the drop in elevation. It was very common for thieves to hide out in all of the different twists and turns in the rocks and to jump upon travelers who were unsuspecting, especially those who were traveling alone. And that's exactly what happens to this Jew, to this man who we don't know his name. We don't know why he's traveling. We don't know why he's traveling alone. Maybe he just got done making a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's headed back to Jericho. Maybe he was doing business in Jerusalem, and now he's headed to Jericho. It doesn't matter, because all that Jesus tells us is that he is attacked, and he is left for dead. This past Sunday, uh, if you follow sports, was opening day for baseball. 
many of you may know I'm a big Royals fan, and so uh, even though this last year wasn't great, the year before that was was heaven for me. Uh, but this past year, or this this year, has started a little rough for us. Uh, we we dropped a, a series to the Twins, got swept, and uh, living here, that's probably the worst thing that could happen to me. Uh, because so many Twins fans. Now, one of the things that was different about things for the Royals this year is that we no longer have our starting pitcher, our, uh, one of our starting pitchers, our best pitcher, Jordano Ventura. Jordano Ventura uh, was in his mid-20s and actually died in a car accident uh, this past January. Uh, Ventura is from the Dominican Republic and was at home on a road not too different than the one that is described here by Jesus. He was driving too fast and took a turn too fast and wrecked his car. Preliminary reports showed that he was actually thrown from the vehicle when he crashed. And while these reports were later proved to be untrue, Dominican news actually said that people found him while he was lying on the ground and instead of helping him, robbed him and left him for dead. The story that Jesus tells here is not all that uncommon. It happens today. It happens in big cities. It happens in other countries. It happens here in the United States. And it happens in small towns. This man is left for dead. He's lying in desperate need. And then Jesus mentions that a priest is coming The hero of the story, right? The priest is coming. Most priests who served in Jerusalem lived in Jericho. So it's likely that this man is heading home to Jerusalem right after, or excuse me, heading home to Jericho after serving in the temple. And here he comes, coming to the rescue. Well, not exactly. You see, Pharisees had strict rules on interacting with the dead. They took ritual cleanness very, very seriously. And to touch someone who was dead was to render yourself unclean. In fact, the Pharisees said that if even your shadow passed on someone who was dead, then you would be considered unclean. But at the same time, the law said that in situations like this, it was permissible. In situations where there was a dire need, it was permissible and admirable to follow through and to help those who were in need. What's more, this man isn't going to Jerusalem. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's going to Jericho. He's just gotten off duty. He has no commitments that he has to keep. And the man isn't dead. He's just lying there hurt. But the priest ignores him. As a man who can't be troubled to inconvenience himself to help this hurt Jew. Not to worry. Even though the priests might not be the hero, here comes a Levite. Levites were still the religious elite. They might not have served in the temple like the priests. They might not have the same rules for purity as the priests, but they were still the good guy. So it was maybe Jesus pointing out the underdog here. Score one for the underdog, because the Levite is the one who is the admirable one here. But as we all know, the Levite does the exact same thing. He crosses the road in order to avoid this traveler. You see what Jesus is describing here? 
Jesus is describing through the priest and the Levite. He's describing the heart of this lawyer. This man who is dead set on keeping the law. And yet he completely misses the purpose of the law. Here is a man who is lying here for who knows how long. Things aren't good. And then a Samaritan shows up. I imagine the crowds, when they heard the Samaritan, they bristled at even the word Samaritan. When Jesus mentioned a Samaritan was coming, perhaps they thought that this was the one who was the robber. There had been a swell of violence between the Jews and the Samaritans in the first century around this time. Perhaps Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor, by throwing Samaritans under the bus, by showing this lawyer to be righteous, to show this priest and this Levite to be righteous because this was an actual trap from this dirty Samaritan. But as we all know, that's not what Jesus, is, Jesus does here. You see, Jesus' story is radically offensive. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. It was a common Jewish prayer in the first century to end your prayers by saying, God, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. The Jews, when they wanted to call Jesus a bad name in the Gospel of John and couldn't think of a name or a title dirty enough for them to use, called him a Samaritan. This is the the hatred that exists between these two groups of people. So for Jesus' story to have its hero be a Samaritan, to suggest that a, a dirty Samaritan understands what it means to love your neighbor more than the Jewish elite, as I mentioned earlier, it is teaching like this that got Jesus killed. You say, I don't know if we can fully understand the visceral offensiveness of Jesus' story here. Because the kingdom of God and its ethics have somewhat permeated our culture. This idea of loving those who are different has permeated our culture. And that's that's a good thing. The closest thing that I can think of is the disdain that many Christians have toward Muslim extremists today. Imagine this, that Jesus is telling a story where the Christians are the bad guys and the Muslim is the good guy. Now, this isn't a one-to-one comparison. Samaritans were uh, an ethnicity. Islam is not an ethnicity, but it's a religion. But that red flag that pops up in your mind when I say the Muslim is a hero of the story, that's the same type of red flag that pops up into the minds of Jesus' original hearers. And it is the Samaritan who shows this traveler radical generosity. I love the the end of verse 33. It says he had compassion upon this man. This word compassion is only used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus, or it's used by Jesus to refer to God's character. It has its roots in classical Greek and refers to internal organs. So what Jesus is saying here is that this man had compassion, this deep-seated compassion that moves his entire being in a way that will not let him pass by. He must address the problem. 
And it's this type of gut-wrenching need that we see in many different examples. I, I, I was reading about the, the, uh, the origins of World Vision this past week. If you're familiar with World Vision, uh, it is a, uh, the largest Christian humanitarian organization in the world. It started with a man during the Korean War who was working with war orphans in Korea. He brought some orphans who were in desperate need of help. He brought them to a missions agency, and the missions agency turned them away because they didn't have enough capacity. They were helping others, and they said, I'm sorry, we can't help these people. We can't help these little children. And rather than getting upset, rather than getting disappointed, discouraged, he said, okay, well, if you can't help them, then I will. And 70 years later, 60 years later, we have world vision, caring for the needs of those who are vulnerable. He saw a need, a need that moved him to action, a need that grabbed a hold of his heart. And he followed God to where it led. You see, this type of compassion is what we see here in the Samaritan's radical generosity. Note briefly his actions. The first thing he does is he's aware of the need. How often do we let needs pass us by simply because we are unaware of them? How many needs there are in, are there in Clay County or in Spencer, even here in our congregation, that we are unaware of because we just don't have the eyes to look, that we don't have the eyes of the Samaritan? See, when we first talk about radical generosity like this generous Samaritan, it's important for us to recognize that we first have to have eyes. We have to understand that there are needs around us. Next thing that we see is this acceptance from the Samaritan. There's a current reality facing him. It's an injured traveler. He doesn't ask questions about why this man is in this situation. He doesn't cast judgment. He just helps someone who is unable to help themselves. The Samaritan takes the initiative to help. You see, there is absolutely wisdom in not enabling destructive habits. 100% agree with that. We are called to be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. The, The parable of the shrewd servant tells us that we are to be wise in this world. But if we are honest, all too often we can determine those that we will help and won't help based off of whether they were just smarter than they wouldn't have got into this situation. Many times, 100% right. People like this traveler, if he was smarter, if he would have traveled with companions, he probably wouldn't be lying on the side of the road right now. He probably doesn't deserve mercy. And yet, we didn't deserve mercy either. Aren't we glad that Jesus accepted us where we were instead of asking us to clean our lives up before we were deserving of mercy. Notice also that the Samaritan takes action. This deep-seated compassion within him that holds him captive won't allow him to not act. And so he binds the man's wounds on the spot. He puts him on his donkey. He spends the night with him, taking care of him, nursing him back to health at this inn. And then he opens up a tab after paying for two months' worth of lodging. Two denarii is two months' worth of lodging. This is radical generosity on behalf of, or, or from this generous Samaritan. 
awareness, acceptance. They do no good if they do not lead us to action. And that's how Jesus ends this parable. He ends it relatively open-ended. I imagine during this parable, as Jesus is telling this, he, he stops looking at the lawyer and he begins to address the entire crowd, drawing them all into the story. And as he finishes, he, he turns his gaze back to the lawyer and asks the final question in verses 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus says, which one of these three has shown mercy? Which one of these three has proved to be a neighbor? Mr. Lawyer, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, am I a neighbor? That's the heart that God wants from us, that he's getting at in the law. It's not rules to follow, but a heart ruled by compassion for the vulnerable. Imagine when Jesus finishes this parable, the silence is just palpable. Here is Jesus, this great teacher. He's upheld the law while also getting to the heart of the law. He shows us that we are called to have radical generosity in our lives, just like this Samaritan toward every single person that we encounter. And I imagine as he turns to the lawyer and he asks the lawyer, which one of these three was a neighbor? The lawyer says through clenched teeth, the one who had mercy on him. He didn't want to accept. But Jesus' response was clear. Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. And that's Jesus' calling for us today as well. To go and do likewise. You see, we don't know the end of the parable. We don't know what happens next. We don't know if the lawyer joins the crowds on Palm Sunday with worship or if he's among the crowds on Good Friday shouting, crucify him. We don't know if Jesus' teaching affected his heart or changed his heart, but we do know how we can respond. And so as we close, just five brief thoughts of what this parable means for us today. The first one is this. Only those shown mercy can truly show mercy. Only those shown mercy can truly show mercy. The first exchange between Jesus and this lawyer makes it very clear. It is impossible for us to live up to the demands of the law. If we are going to try to inherit eternal life by doing, if we're going to try to love God with every fiber of our being while we love others with the same radical generosity that we show ourselves, we will fail. If this type of God love, this type of neighbor love is required to inherit eternal life, then we will fall short. None of us are worthy. But the gracious news of the gospel is that we have indeed been shown mercy. And because of that mercy, we are able to show and live out the mercy that is on display here from this generous Samaritan. Trying to live out a gospel-centered compassion, a love for the vulnerable, without understanding the gospel, without receiving the mercy of the gospel, is impossible. The first thing that this passage teaches us is that only those shown mercy can truly show mercy. second thing this passage teaches us is the opposite. That those who are shown mercy will show mercy. 
That's the first point. It's, uh, it's impossible without mercy. The second point is it is a, a part of the Christian's life to live out this mercy. The calling uh, to love our neighbors requires for us to love in the way that this generous Samaritan loves. It is necessary. It is natural to love in this way. That is what the parable of the generous Samaritan is all about. It's the ethics of, of kingdom living. A radical call to live generously toward those who are in need. Third thing is this. Authentic love for my neighbor involves my time. Authentic love for my neighbor involves my time. Look at all that the Samaritan did for this traveler. Every single action he took was an inconvenience to himself. He changes his schedule. He gives sole attention to the need of the traveler. He uses his limited knowledge of first aid to prepare this man for travel. And then he brings him to a hotel. He, he helps him even more. He spends the night with him. And then he recoup- allows him to recuperate in a hotel by paying for his stay. You see, the way the parable ends assumes that this, the Samaritan continues to check on the man. Loving the vulnerable takes time. It just takes time. And for many of us, time is our most valuable resource. It can be possible for us to squeeze a few dollars from one place or another. But time, in a very real way, is finite. If you try to steal time, whether from sleep or from your family or things, you will have to pay it back one day. Time is finite. And yet here we see a picture of what it looks like to have margin in our lives, to be able to meet the needs of those, to love others with our time. Perhaps the calling for you this morning is not even necessarily to love others at this point. It's simply to just create margin in your life so that way you can be aware of needs. You can work alongside those who are already meeting needs and that you could one day do it yourself. Authentic love for my neighbor takes time. Authentic love for my neighbor also involves my finances. Notice again what the Samaritan does. I mentioned that two denarii are worth two months lodging. He takes financial responsibilities beyond that. This is an interesting category, this idea of finances, because uh, while all of us probably wish we had more time, uh, we come from radically different places when it comes to finances. For some, it is a lot easier to give your finances as a way of loving because you just don't have the time and it's just write, writing a check, it can be just easier. But for others, finances are tight. And maybe it is easier for you to create margin in your time rather than financially. I don't know your specific situation. I don't know the resources that God has given you. It's going to look radically different based off of your position of life. But this calling is the same. So ask yourself, how can I mirror the generosity of this Samaritan with authentic love through my finances? The final thing is this. Authentic love for my neighbor involves my heart. Authentic love for my neighbor involves my heart. I mentioned earlier that the most powerful part of this parable, the most moving part, is this word compassion in verse 33. The Samaritan gives his time, the Samaritan gives his money, but in more than that, he gives his heart. He allows himself to enter into the hurt of the man on the road and actually allows himself to be hurt. 
This story is made up, so we, don't, we have no idea. We, we can just deal with the theoretical here. It is very possible because we're making this story up. What if the man came back to the hotel and the traveler was gone? He had left without so much as a thank you for all that the man, the Samaritan, had done for him. What if this traveler, who was a Jew, by the way, decided he wanted nothing to do with the Samaritan who he owed his life to? These are risks the Samaritan took. He opened up his heart to this man. You see, authentic love for our neighbor means that we put ourselves at places where we are at risk to get hurt. We are at risk to be taken advantage of, that we are at risk to let our hearts be crushed. Isn't that what Jesus does with the free offer of the gospel? That Jesus gives us his heart? You see, authentic love for our neighbor doesn't mean that we just serve. It doesn't mean that we just give, but it means that we enter into the hurt. We enter into the madness of those who are around us at the risk of our own hearts. If we were to sum up this parable this morning, I think it would be one simple thing, and that is this. Those bought by sacrifice, sacrifice much. Those bought by sacrifice, sacrifice much. We remember the cross this Holy Week. We remember the sacrifice for us this Holy Week. We remember what it means. And if we have been bought by that sacrifice, then we also are called to sacrifice much. You see, Jesus changes the categories of this lawyer. In this conversation, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is not, who do I have to serve because God requires me to do so? It's much more personal. Am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor? This Easter, will you be a neighbor? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, the challenge of your word, the comfort of your word, and the ways that it it convicts us and makes us more like you. We pray that we would rest in the mercy shown to us on the cross, and God, that that would spur us on to mercy in our own lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.